Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Happy Christmas. <laughs> Come on, Dominic. You're yeah. allowed to say Happy Christmas too. Uh, yeah, I was Honestly, wondering if you Scrooge-like figure glaring at the screen. It's Christmas Day. It's the birth of our saviour. <laughs> Very happy Christmas to all our listeners. Dominic is glaring away in the background. I was just Very wondering happy if you were going to keep talking... Well. <laughs> I'd offered a festive greeting. Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to the first of our 12 days of Christmas <laughs> podcasts. And you, you can already it. see the spirit in which this will unfold. <laughs> so, okay, Tom, yes. explain that this is all your idea. Uh, the reason I'm doing nothing but podcasting between now, <laughs> July, and Christmas Day is because of you and this crackpot wheeze of yours. So explain it to the listeners, please. Well, so um, we're not going to be putting out the regular um, pair of episodes. Um, instead, we're making we're going to make it much harder for ourselves. And we're going to do uh, a succession of podcasts uh, themed around the concept of the 12 days of Christmas. Which is, of course, a very sacral idea. Very sacral. Do you know what it originates in, Dominic? Christianity. Christmas. Yeah, it originates in Christianity. And specifically the Council of Tor in 567. Where wow, it's prescribed I didn't know that. The, the 12 days following Christmas will be a time of, of festive reflection. But it's not the Council of Tor that dictates the pear tree and the people <laughs> no, sleeping that's or whatever. That's later. That's yeah. much later. Um, so uh, lots of people think that, you know, you have Christmas and then it's over on Boxing Day and you go to the sales. Uh, but of course... Um, that's not the, that's not the case. Christmas goes on until either the fifth of January or the sixth of January, depending on whether you start the twelve days of Christmas from Christmas Day or from the day after Christmas Day. We are going we're, to do. We're basically doing the thirteen days. Yeah, we do both, don't we? <laughs> so unlucky for some. So, and the idea is that uh, each day we're going to discuss a, an event that happened on one of the twelve days of Christmas, and I've chosen one. And Dominic has chosen one. Yeah. So Dominic, should we show? Should we? Should we reveal to listeners how this works by saying, well, "What well, have you chosen?" Okay. So I've chosen a very festive seasonal <laughs> um, anniversary. So twenty fifth of December, nineteen ninety one. It's the end of the Soviet Union. Nothing. Uh, well, nothing. <laughs> nothing screams the festive spirit no. like a discussion of. The end of the Soviet yeah, Union. I think. I think when so people you're, you're preparing think people your turkey, turkey or sorting crackers, out your Brussels sprouts, tree, Mikhail Gorbachev, like economic <laughs> exactly. reform has gone wrong. That's what exactly. people think about at Christmas, isn't it? So ho 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 ho. Um, and do you know what I've gone for? Well, you do because I've already. Yeah, because it was written down in front of me. <laughs> yeah. uh, I have chosen um, the coronation of Charlemagne in okay. Rome on Christmas Day. Well, that's a very. Fa- I mean, that's probably eight hundred. And again. Nothing screams Christmas like listening to someone going on about <laughs> international politics in the ninth century. But do you know what, Tom? I think that's probably the most famous thing other than Christmas to have happened on Christmas Day, isn't it? Possibly the coronation, coronation of William the Conqueror. No, the coronation of Charlemagne is more famous. Yeah, I think, I think it is. It is, yes. And it's it's uh, and we've chosen I mean not so not all the episodes that we've chosen are going to be quite as seismic and historic, but both both our choices are, are very, very historic. They are. Um and uh 
I guess we should crack on. So I have, cho- yeah, so I've chosen the, the coronation of Charlemagne. Charlemagne, titanic figure in the history of um, Western Europe. We, ha- we haven't done yet, but we could absolutely do um, a- an episode on in due course. Um, so set the scene, Tom. Who, where are, where are, where so, and when are we? So Charlemagne is the king of the Franks. Uh, and the Franks have, have emerged um, in the centuries that have followed the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West as the most powerful kingdom in what had been um, the Roman Empire in the West. Um, there are other players in Christian Europe, uh, the two most significant of which um, are the, the emperor in Constantinople, yep. who rules in a direct line of succession from the Roman Empire of, of the East. Well, they still think of themselves as the Romans. All the, yeah, all the way back to Augustus. Um, and the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, who is the Bishop of, um, one of the, the, you know, the most important city in Christian, in the Christian world. So there are kind of, there are five patriarchs of the Patriarch of Rome, of Constantinople, of Antioch, of Jerusalem, and of Alexandria. Is Rome more important than Constantinople? Surely not. Yes, it is. It is because it's, it's the, it's, it's where Peter and Paul uh, were martyred and and are buried. Uh, and it was the cap- original capital of the Roman Empire. But the people in Constantinople wouldn't have said that, would they? Well, that, that, so this is a kind of long-running um, fracture point, a stress point. Um, so the pa- the patriarchies of, of um, Alexandria, of Jerusalem, and of Antioch have come under Muslim rule. Uh, Constantinople, obviously, directly under the thumb of the emperor in, in uh, Constantinople. The Bishop of Rome, in a slightly am- ambiguous position, uh, and an exposed position, because... Um, the Romans, the Byzantines, whatever, it becomes incredibly confusing because you never know when you're talking about the Romans, yeah. whether you mean the people from Rome or whether you mean the Romans of Byzantium. But let's call them Byzantines. Um, have reconquered much of Italy, but it's kind of frayed away. Um, and the, the Pope is essentially, he's the servant of the, the emperor in Constantinople. He, he's a subject of the emperor in Constantinople. And yeah. every time a Pope is elected, he sends um, uh, the, the news directly to the emperor in Constantinople. However, the problem is that Byzantine control over Italy has, is threatened by various barbarian peoples, of whom the most significant are the Lombards. Yep. And the Lombards are constantly pressing down on Rome, and the Bishop of Rome wants to keep his independence. So um, by the 8th century, the Pope is starting to look around for another protector, and the obvious person to turn to is the King of the Franks. Right, because they're the big power in Western Europe, aren't they? The big power in Western Europe. So one of the popes goes, um, he crosses the Alps and he goes to Francia. What are the Franks looking for? Well, as it so happens, there's just been a regime change in Francia. One of the, the Merovingian dynasty, the original dynasty uh, of, the, of the Franks has been toppled. And the pretenders, uh, the line of Charles, Carolus, so Charles Martel, yeah. who defeated the Saracens at uh, the Battle of Tours, um, the Carolingians, as we call them, they are looking for the kind of legitimacy that only the Bishop of Rome can provide. And so the Pope zips over the Alps. He crowns uh, Pepin, who's the son of Charles Martel, as king. Yeah. Uh, and basically, it's a kind of, you know, it's it's a match made in heaven. The Pope benefits, the Carolingians benefit. So Charlemagne is the son of, of Pepin. He's become, you know, I mean, he's, he's, the, he, he's become absolutely the Grand Fromage of Latin Western Europe. He's conquered the Saxons. He's um, pushed into Eastern Europe. He's defeated the Saracens in Spain. Uh, he's, everything's going tremendously well for him. Then there is a crisis in Rome. And Dominic, I'm aware that I've been talking a lot. Do you have anything 
to contribute to this topic. Nothing. Continue. Absolutely nothing. Speak to carry on talking. I'm interested. I'm listening to the story. It's Christmas okay. Day. I'm, I'm busy right. cooking my goose, and okay. um, and I'm listening. I'm thinking, what do I want? I want Tom Holland to talk to me about the Franks. So nothing. I mean, what is more festive than um, yeah. a tale of maiming? <laughs> Go on then, maim away. Okay. So seven nine five. Yeah. Uh, a pope called Hadrian the first, um, who is a Roman aristocrat, very very well connected. Yeah. Um, being very, very popular with the uh, the Carolingians. He dies and he gets succeeded by a guy who takes on the name of Leo III. Okay. Um, and Leo's background is is much less exclusive. And so Hadrian's relatives are a bit resentful of this. And they feel he's a bit of a parvenu, a bit of an upstart. Yeah. And so they they essentially, they're, they're kind of bubbling away in the background. They're cross. And they seize in 799... They ambush Leo and they blind him and they cut his tongue out. That's kind of always the way, though, isn't it, in this period? Blinding, cutting off people's noses, all that sort of stuff is very much par for the course. Yeah, but what happens next is not par for the course. And this is where it's a Christmas miracle. Because what then happens is Leo escapes and miraculously he regains his sight and he regains his ability to talk. Okay, so that suggests to me that both the blinding and the tongue severing were not they they were not carried out properly. They were carried well, out in, incompetently. Or it happened that through God's foreknowledge and action, Leo recovered his sight and his tongue was restored to him so he could speak. Okay, well, that's different. So either it didn't happen or God made it happen. Yeah, that's, it's Christmas, so let's say it did, let's say it did yeah. happen. Yeah. So Leo, ha- having done his escape and had this miraculous recovery, he, he scarpers off north to meet um, Charlemagne, who is hanging out in Saxony. And Charlemagne basically means Carolus Magnus, isn't it? Charles, Charles the Great. Great. Charles yeah. Great, yeah. And um, Charles comes to meet him and they meet up at a place called Paderborn. Uh, Leo stays there for three months. Uh, they commune, they chat away. Clearly something is is brewing. And then Leo goes back to Rome. And okay. for a year, they don't see each other. Then on the 23rd of November, 800, Charlemagne is approaching Rome with a, a great army, great retinue. And Leo goes out to meet him. Uh, and they come into Rome. Yeah. And Charlemagne has come basically to legitimate Leo's papacy. So he convenes a synod. Um, he exonerates Leo of all the charges that have been brought against him by his enemies. Uh, he affirms the fact that, a, a, you know, a pope can't be judged. He's the pope. Um, yeah. And this is so basically Charlemagne by now is in Rome. Other things, however, simultaneously are happening in the background. So on the theme of mutilation, you said how mutilation is... is, is very Christmassy. Yeah, very, very Christmas. but, but a key part of what's going on here. So meanwhile, in Constantinople, so three years earlier in 797, you have one of the great women of Byzantine history, uh, Irene, mm-hmm. uh, of an aristocratic Athenian family who's gone to Constantinople, married, had a son. This son has become Constantine the Sixth. Yeah. But in Irene's opinion, in Mum's opinion, he doesn't measure up. So, do you know what Irene does? Blinds him. Cuts out blinds his tongue. Yeah. yeah, blinds him. Blinds him. And she basically becomes empress. That's uh, her own son, this is. Yeah. She blinds her own son. That is very poor parenting. <laughs> well, it's strict, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's harsh. Um, and any parents out there with difficult toddlers or... It's Christmas you know. and t- the tempers do get fraught. You know? <laughs> don't, go, don't, don't go the full Irene. Um <laughs> So, so you've got Charlemagne in Rome. You've got an empress in Constantinople. 
And then on the 23rd of December, a further miraculous episode. So two, um, uh, sorry, three of Charlemagne's servants arrive from Jerusalem. Yeah. And they are bringing with them the keys to the Holy Sepulchre and a holy banner. Oh, that's nice. And it's a miracle. It's another Christmas miracle. They've turned up two days before Christmas. Yeah. Incredible odds against that. You don't reckon they arrived early and were just waiting outside to kind of... Well, that would be the perspective of of a cynical 21st century historian. Yeah. Again, let's run with the idea of a Christmas miracle. So everything is coming together. So there's this idea that um, Charlemagne is now the guardian of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. You know, very holy. Uh, The the Pope is there. He's beholden to to Charlemagne. Um, The Empress in Constantinople, that's looking illegitimate. And so on the 25th of December, Charlemagne is crowned as emperor, not as king, but as emperor in Rome. And the idea there is that the line of emperors in Rome that had been extinguished with Romulus Augustulus back in the fifth century has now been revitalized. So just as in the fourth and the fifth centuries, you might have two emperors in the Roman emperor, in the Roman empire. Ever since the fifth century, there's only been the one, the one in Constantinople. Now with the crowning of Charlemagne, there are two once again. And is so he crowned by the Eastern Pope? Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire. He is crowned by the Pope. Now, did Charlemagne know what was coming? This is the big question. So there's um, a guy called Einhardt, who's a monk, who um, writes a life of Charlemagne that's modelled on Suetonius's lives of the Caesars. Yeah. And he says that at first Charlemagne was so averse to receiving the name of emperor that he said he would never have entered the church that day, even though it was the most important feast day, if he had known the Pope's plan beforehand. So Charlemagne shocked, shocked to discover that he's being crowned as emperor. (laughs) But I think almost certainly Charlemagne absolutely knew what was happening. Um, And I think the the key proof of that really is the incredibly serendipitous if it is just serendipitous, turning up of the uh, the people from Jerusalem. It's obviously yeah. stage-mannered to make it look as good as possible. Um, and uh, a contemporary chronicler gives three reasons why it's legitimate for Charlemagne to be crowned as Roman emperor. Are you going um, to tell us? I know you are, because I, I, I can see yeah. you looking at your notes. I am. Go on, tell us so, the three reasons. Uh, one of them is that, that you have a woman ruling as emperor in Constantinople. Okay, that's that's... So this is a sexist era, and this yes. is viewed as being shocking, unacceptable. Um, the second is that um, Rome is the seat of the Caesars, the ancestral seat of the Caesars, um, and it is now effectively uh, under the protection of Charlemagne, and so therefore he should be emperor. That's a terrible reason, because I mean, Rome's that's a good reason. A, Rome has been under the protection of lots of people in the intervening three hundred and twenty. Yeah, but the Byzantine, you know, the... Irene can't come to, to you know, I muscle suppose... in on the Lombards. Charlemagne's yeah, but... defeated the Lombards. But previous He's people the haven't the crowned now. themselves emperor, have they? I mean, you know, uh, Theodoric the Ostrogoth or whatever these people are called who've been in charge of Rome. Yeah, but that's because the third reason, Charles Dominion now ranks as an empire because he has many provinces. Yeah. Okay. That's that's a good reason because he is, he is ruling an empire. Yeah. Isn't he? So for those reasons, it's yeah. viewed as um, absolutely legitimate. So um, Charlemagne becomes emperor. And that's and the dawn of the Holy Roman Empire, right? It's the dawn of the Holy Roman Empire. I mean, there will be a break because um, Charlemagne furiously divides his empire up. So it kind of gets increasingly fragmented. Um, the figure of the, the emperors who succeed him become increasingly kind of wraith-like and spectral. And finally, they vanish completely. Um, and, that, but, and it's not until the 10th century when Otto the Great, friend of the show, <laughs> that hairy-chested victor at the Battle of the Lechfield, um, yeah. 
is crowned emperor again. And that then establishes the continuous line that runs Although, right the way through to Napoleon. To, to Napoleon. Yeah. But at that point, from Ottoman onwards, the Holy Roman Empire is basically Germany, isn't it? With a bit of northern Italy yeah. attached. Yeah. Um, and then Napoleon, he, his coronation is modelled on Charlemagne's coronation, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he crowns so that, himself. So um, yeah. the Pope is there, but doesn't, doesn't yeah. crown him. So that's very festive, Tom. Yeah, I think, I mean, nothing more festive than a few blindings. Well, there is actually something more festive. (laughs) What is that, Dominic? That's, uh, that's, that's Soviet politics in the late 1980s (laughs) and early 1990s. And that's what we'll turn to next after the break. So get ready, get your Christmas crackers ready, prepare the pigs in blankets. Mikhail Gorbachev is coming. See you after the break. Hello, welcome back to uh, Christmas Day on The Rest is History. Uh, and it's the first of our 12 days of Christmas specials. Uh, we are looking at events that happened on this day, uh, decades, centuries, millennia ago, who knows. Um, in the first half, we looked at the coronation of Charlemagne in Rome on this day in AD 800. And now, Dominic Sandbrook, you are going to tickle the festive underbelly by telling us all about the end of the Soviet Union. Well, the funny thing is, this is on Christmas Day, but it wasn't Christmas Day in Russia, where it where it happens. So obviously they have their Christmas much later. I can't even remember when day what day the Orthodox Christmas is on, but it's someday in January, isn't it? Yeah. So this isn't Christmas Day for them. Um, so this is the 25th of December, 1991, um, and we are in the Kremlin in Moscow. And Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev is about to resign as president of the Soviet Union, a state which has only hours left. And it's kind of dead already, actually. So it's an extraordinary moment. Vladimir Putin says this is the greatest kind of geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century. Has, has the KGB been abolished by this point? Uh, I think it's sort of been abolished in, in name, but not in... But still, he's hovering around. Yeah, he's hovering around. Although a lot of KGB officers, like Putin, are kind of completely discombobulated and astonished and uh, you know, there's an incredible sense of kind of febrile uncertainty in Russia. And it's extraordinary to think that basically the beginning of the year, 1991, um, the Cold War is obviously over. The Berlin Wall has fallen. Eastern Europe is no longer communist. But nobody thinks the Soviet Union is going to wither away. I mean, it's still there. And um, CIA analysts and so on, they don't think it's going anywhere. Um, and, and there's a... Because we should explain, shouldn't we, that... that, that... It's a union. So the vast majority of it is Russia, but you've also got all these other republics, Baltic states, Ukraine, Georgia, Central Asia, or the Caucasian republics. Exactly. So, and that was something I think that for a lot of people in the West, they didn't really appreciate because we'd used Russia and Soviet interchangeably. Like England and Britain. Exactly. And that's something that's about to sort of really catch up with Soviet politics. So Gorbachev has been in since 1985. He's a hero in the West because he's seen as cuddly and peace-loving and all of these kinds of things. Got a glamorous wife. You're right, Raisa, exactly. Um, and he comes and has summits with, with uh, Reagan and Thatcher and so on. But in reality, in Russia, he's, his popularity has been sinking like a stone. Because the economy has been sinking like a stone. The economy has been terrible. He's tried political and economic reform simultaneously. Um, and it hasn't produced the results that he wanted. But by, yeah, what he's done is by having economic reforms and political reforms simultaneously, he's done two things. He's alienated a lot of ordinary Russians whose living standards are kind of imploding. 
and who uh, are sort of feel lost in this new world. But at the same time, he's alienated a lot of the elites that he would need because of his political reforms, because he's sort of moved to some kind of democracy and so on. So by the middle of 1991, Gorbachev is in this dreadful mess where he's, he's sort of, it, nobody is for him. He's caught between the liberals and the conservatives. Like Boris. And, well, <laughs> that's a, that's a, warnings yes. from history. Yeah, well, I'm not sure that Boris is going to have like a coup and be locked up in the Crimea on holiday or something. Um, but anyway, yes. So poor old Gorbachev, he goes off to the Crimea on holiday, exhausted, beleaguered, and hardliners in the Kremlin, really because they're, they're outraged, um, that he's trying to get through this new treaty to reassert the Soviet Union, a new union treaty with the various republics. And they think that will give away too much power from the center. And they think this is their last chance to kind of stop him. So they launched this coup where they basically lock him up in his dacha in the Crimea and then they seize power in, in Moscow. I remember re- I remember seeing the um the standard, the evening standard. Uh the yep. headlines saying coup in sort of Yeah, know, I remember it oh, so vividly. God, I mean it's it's gonna just, be it was extraordinary because it was so got control of the missiles and it was so competent and it was it was it, but it was played out in the full glare of the media. I mean I can remember watching yeah. Newsnight on this that when the um the protesters were massing outside the Russian Parliament building, the White House, it's called, in Moscow, and there were tanks surrounding them, and there was this standoff, and and basically everybody in the and West. And the mayor of Moscow. Well, he's not the mayor of Moscow. He's what the, is he? Say Boris the, Yeltsin. He's the leader of the Russian of the of the Russian right. sort of Soviet right. Republic. So, so Boris Yeltsin. So you should tell us who Boris Yeltsin. So is. Boris Yeltsin is a former. You know, he's a he's a uh, been a Communist Party apparatchik. But he has fallen out with Yeltsin, with Gorbachev rather, because Boris has been, Boris Yeltsin has been sort of pushing to go further and faster. They have fallen out. He's made himself very much the face of the kind of reformers. And once Gorbachev is, um, imprisoned by the coup plotters, sort of head of the KGB and the defense ministry and so on, they make the terrible mistake of not locking up Boris Yeltsin because they just think he's a loose cannon and a drunk and a wastrel. It's like the assassins of Caesar. Neglecting right. to arrest Mark, Ma- Anthony. Mark Anthony. It's exactly yeah. that, actually, Tom. That's a very good parallel. So Yeltsin, of course, then seizes his moment. He jumps onto a tank and he sort of rallies the Russian people. The coup collapses pretty quickly. Within days, Gorbachev flies back from the Crimea, but he, his power has completely... Yeah, he's a broken um, reed. He's a, yeah, has completely seeped away. And in the next few weeks, there is this sudden, there's this kind of rush of events. So Yeltsin outlaws the communist party in russia and the old sort of elite the hardliners are so broken by the failure of the coup and so kind of disorientated that they can't stop him so he outlaws the communist party and then you get this sort of domino effect and the key moment i think is on the first of december when ukraine very relevant given you know, the headlines in the last yeah. few days so ukraine holds a referendum about asserting its sovereignty and basically independence in the soviet union and to a lot of people's astonishment the Ukraine votes to leave, On a, a massive basically. Majority, I think. It's yeah, ninety percent. Extraordinary, and that's a sign of how much um, the elite sort of driven reforms have alienated people. I think. I mean, obviously, it's a sign of nationalist sentiment and so on. But I think the results take everybody by surprise. Then seven days later, Yeltsin and the leaders of uh, the leader of Ukraine and the leader of Belarus they meet a place called Bella Veja in a kind of hunting lodge without behind Gorbachev's back. And they basically sign an agreement that they will 
They're, they're different republics. They will set up as independent states and they will be part of a commonwealth of independent states and they won't be part of the Soviet Union anymore. So you can sort of imagine this in a previous era, in a completely different political context, the reaction of the Kremlin would have been to just arrest them, put yeah. them in a gulag, send in the tanks, just crush it. But Gorbachev doesn't have that instinct. Whether the army would obey him anyway is very dubious. He, power has left him. The The old sort of structures... I've lost all credibility and self The old system collapsed before a new one had time to start working, apparently. That's, said. that's what Gorbachev said, isn't it, in yeah. his Christmas Day yeah. speech. Yeah. So from that point, from the 8th of December onwards, the end of the Soviet Union is absolutely inevitable. I mean, the republics are declaring. Then what happens is more and more republics don't want to be left behind. So they start rush, they rush to, de- to declare their yeah, independence yeah. too. And of course, the reason for that is that the individual, the sort of the old party barons in these places think this is the way I will hold on to power because I will declare, you know, I will rush. Which is what Yeltsin had done. Yeah, precisely. This is, I will reinvent myself as a nationalist. And this is the way I will, this is what the people do in Central Asia. what Putin does. So Gorbachev, suddenly he's stuck, he's there in the Kremlin, but basically he's leading a state that is crumbling around him that no longer exists. And um, I think on the 23rd of December, he has a meeting with Yeltsin. Um, quite a tense, a long meeting for hours where they agree that in two days' time he will hand over the nuclear briefcase mm-hmm. and he will basically give up power. And this happens to be, that day happens to be the 25th of December, which obviously for us is Christmas Day. Extraordinary kind of coincidence. So the stage is set then for this speech. Gorbachev is going to give this internationally televised speech, an absolute an extraordinary moment in history that actually, even now, I think people in the West yeah. don't get their heads around enough. That the guy who was the successor to Lenin and Stalin and Brezhnev and Khrushchev is going to resign and, and the state is going to collapse live on television. Um, now, they want to do it with the cameras. Uh, first of all, the head of Russian TV says to Gorbachev, I want you to sign. It'd be great television if you would sign the resignation live, like, you know, um, we'd have the cameras on you. And Gorbachev says, no, I won't do that. I'll sign it when the cameras aren't rolling. Um, and then there's the question of how are they going to broadcast it? The Russian, I mean, this is an extraordinary metaphor. The Russian cameras are not, they're, they're huge, they're antiquated. They're basically like cameras from the 1950s or something. And they don't have the facilities to do a kind of satellite broadcast around the world. So CNN are the only people in Moscow with the facilities to do it. So it's an American television crew that are going to capture these images that go around the world. It's like the Sasanian emperor using a Roman emperor as his mounting block. It's even more than that, Tom, because the moment comes for Gorbachev to sign the um, the resignation. The, 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 the office, if you've ever seen footage of, of presidents giving speeches, the office is out of shot. It's packed with technicians and so on, most of whom are American, not Russian, because they're working for CNN. Gorbachev goes to sign the piece of paper and the pen doesn't work. The Russian pen <laughs> doesn't work. It's a Soviet pen. So do you know what he does? He borrows a pen from a man called Tom Johnson, the president of CNN, who hands him his, his Mont Blanc pen. Oh, a pen that could not be. Capitalist pen. A cap- the ultimate capitalist pen. Uh, and, Gorbachev's, and Gorbachev signs it, signs the resignation with the capitalist pen. Then he gives this, um, twin, what is it, 20 minute, 30 minute speech where he basically says um, he, 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 he defends himself against the idea that he has unnecessarily plunged the country into turmoil because he says, we had to change, we were failing, 
you know, I know it hasn't worked out. And he's sort of this very sort of passionate defense of his, of his own policies. Um, and then, but of course, he's incredibly unpopular in Russia to an extent that, again, I think people in the West don't really grasp. We think of him as cuddly and liberal and we don't understand why. But Russians just look at him and they think this is the man who's destroyed our country and plunged us into an economic abyss. So he's giving this sort of rather plaintive defense of his policies, but it's actually too late. Uh, then he finishes. And then at 7.32, in this, again, fantastically symbolic moment, the two workmen take down the red flag that flies over the Kremlin that has flown there since, uh, effectively, kind of metaphorically, since the Russian Revolution, since the death of the Tsars and all that stuff. So down comes the red flag and up goes the white, um, blue and red tricolor of Russia rather than the Soviet Union. And then there are these two sort of rival um, drinking sessions. So Gorbachev goes into his office with a couple of his aides with a bottle of cognac and they... You know, they sort of reminisce about what went wrong and all this kind of thing. And meanwhile, Yeltsin. Yeltsin? What's Yeltsin yeah. up to? So Yeltsin also goes into an office with a bottle of cognac. But there are conflicting accounts. So some people say Yeltsin and his mates got lashed, but others say Yeltsin was actually, Yeltsin was a much more anxious and, um, person than is often, in the West, he's often perceived as kind of jovial, jovial drunk, shambolic bear. Yeah, a bit of a kind of Boris Johnson, actually. You know, sort yeah, of a... A drunk sham- Boris Johnson. Yeah, a drunk but slightly more serious Boris Johnson. <laughs> yeah. In fact, Yeltsin was much more kind of neurotic. And only a couple of years y- later, Yeltsin had basically had a nervous breakdown. And I think a lot of people say tried to kill himself. Um, uh, so Yeltsin is much more anxious. And some p- sources say Yeltsin didn't join in the drinking because he was so overawed by the responsibility that he knew um, was awaiting him. So, so the Soviet Union comes to an end. Uh, George Bush um, interrupts his Christmas Day in America to give a speech to the American people, saying, "You know, the Soviet Union is end over. We will we work won. with Russia. We have won all that sort USA, of stuff." USA, USA. Now, what you could say, Tom, is that this one reason that this is such an important moment China. in our modern. Well, it's not just China. It's it also China. because this is the point at which, in a way, you could argue. I mean, some people would say well, Russia wasn't the West to lose, but the West does lose Russia. Because what then happens to Russia? Yeah, all those kind of 20-year-old management consultants rush in, privatise yeah, everything. everything goes horribly wrong. For the Russian people, their their savings, their pensions, their living standards collapse. Yeah. The living standards of Russian ordinary Russians dip colossally in the next few years. Russia is drawn so Putin. wars but in I did, Chechnya and so China, It matters massively for China. Because I think every Chinese leader looks at the humiliations visited on Gorbachev and thinks we're not going to allow that to happen. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. They definitely think that. So they it's think, the making of Xi Jinping and of Putin. Well, they that, think, they say, this is what happens when you foolishly do political reform and economic reform at the same time. Yeah. The political reform is is you just throw away your power. Um, you know, you need to do the economic reform. And, and the Chinese famously thought that Gorbachev was mad yeah. in doing these two things at once. And of course, well, because Tiananmen had been... You know, in eighty nine, summer of eighty nine. So yeah, they, they'd already decided on that policy and never apologised for it. Now, with uh, for Putin, and with, so for people who are in our rest is history club, uh, it's not too late to join up on Christmas Day, of course. Uh, <laughs> Christmas, yeah. Christmas, Christmas wouldn't present. be Christmas without a, a hint of commercialism. <laughs> um, uh, for people in our rest is history club or on the Discord chat, they've been talking a lot about this um, in the last few weeks about Gorbachev and Russia. And I think one of the key things when you're understanding Putin is to 
for a lot of ordinary Russians, they say, of course, Putin is better than the alternative because we tried the alternative in the 1990s and it was a complete and utter disaster. So this moment that we in the West think of as a moment of celebration and triumph, the end of the USSR, to, you know, more than 100 million people, it's a, it's a moment of utter, as they see it, a moment of utter disaster and chaos and tragedy and so on. Um, and arguably, you know, I think the coronation of Charlemagne obviously is, the, to me, the most famous Christmas Day event since the birth of Christ. But I think the most... Was he born on Christmas Day? Uh, well, that's the well, question, isn't it? Yeah. But I think the, the end of the Soviet Union, we're still actually sort of grappling to come to terms Well, there's a kind of the wonderful world. symmetry there, isn't there? Because we've had uh, the birth of an empire. And the death and of an empire. The death of an empire. Tom, we couldn't uh, have scripted it better. <laughs> yeah, uh, and both very festive. So, now, we should um, say that they will be the future editions of this podcast. Slightly days, less heavyweight. They will be less heavyweight. I look I look through my notes and I see the delights to come. I see the William, the poetry of William McGonagall, uh, the Battle of Wakefield. The Bridge um, disaster. Yeah, yeah, it's all Queen, there. The birth of Queen Emma of Hawaii. The, the life of J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, Albert Camus. We've got so many Christmassy treats <laughs> coming up. So uh, one a day, one a day up to the 6th of January. So we'll have a podcast every day till then. And um, we look forward to uh, talking to you for the next one, whether you like it or not. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like gall. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe. <laughs>